All right, I was driving uh, on Thursday, and I saw this billboard, this billboard, like I'm sure you've seen Christian billboards before. This one caught my eye in particular because it said something to the effect of, who is Jesus? And then it said, read the book of Matthew. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you guys this morning, just uh, by way of review from last week, who, who was Matthew's audience? Who was he writing this book to? Jewish people. Yes. No, you're good. And, and what uh, is he trying to convince the Jewish people of? Yes, I think I heard it over here and here that Jesus is the Messiah, the King. Yes, you can even tell by uh, our PowerPoint up there. And, and what particularly, what method did he use that we looked at last week to convince Jewish people that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the fulfillment of what? Jane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember over and over and over again in those first five chapters, we saw prophecy after prophecy after prophecy fulfilled. Jesus is that son of David. He is virgin born. He is from Bethlehem. He did flee to Egypt. I mean, over and over and over and over again, we're seeing Jesus is the Messiah. And you can imagine that for Jewish people, particularly 20, 30 years after uh, Jesus' death, as they are seeing this, I'll call it new religion, branch off from them. This was a confusing time for Jewish people. They're hearing Christians talking about how going to the temple and offer sacrifices is no longer necessary. These Christians are saying that the Messiah has already come, and you can just imagine, if you put yourself in their shoes, this is confusing. What do we do with this? And Matthew says, I'm going to make this as easy as possible for you guys to believe by showing you from your own scriptures, Jesus is this promised Messiah. This week in chapters 6 to 10, Matthew takes a little bit of a different approach. He has a different tactic up his sleeve, if you will, rather than pointing back to Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. This time around, Matthew says, I'm going to demonstrate to you that Jesus is this promised Messiah by the authority that he possesses. He's going to take great pains to show us that Jesus is unlike any other man simply by his authority. It's one of those key words that shows up in Matthew. We'll see it a lot today. We're actually going to have to begin uh, back in last week's reading in Matthew chapter 5. So turn there, if you will, so we can get a fuller picture of Jesus' authority. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this begins what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus actually gives a little bit of a disclaimer before he even begins. Actually, it's probably right in the middle of his sermon. In verse 17, let's look at that together. He tells the people, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And it would seem from this verse that maybe there are some people who have actually accused Jesus of doing this very thing. As we're going to see in just a minute here, his teaching about the law is new. 
Some of his actions, particularly his actions on the Sabbath day, might seem to observers that he is coming to abolish the law. Remember, he tells the disciples they can take and pluck kernels out of the field on the Sabbath day. He heals the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees come after him for that. And it may seem that some of Jesus' teaching or his actions are abolishing the law, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. Actually, what I'm doing here is I have come to fulfill the law. Now, this could be a reference to a number of things. It could be a reference to Jesus fulfilling the law as in he's the fulfillment of the prophecies. It could be Jesus fulfilling the law as in he keeps the entirety of it. It could also mean that Jesus, in fulfilling the law, is actually going to heighten its expectations or elaborate upon the law, as we'll see in almost immediately in the following verses. Before Jesus goes on to elaborate on the law, though, in verse 20, he reads that verse we considered last week. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And we talked about this last week. When Jesus said this to the original audience, their eyes must have just been like, are you kidding me? I have to be more righteous than the most visibly righteous people in this society? Look what Jesus does in verse 21. We read, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus takes this commandment that everyone knows, that God himself wrote with his hand, if you will, on the mountain and gave it to Moses, you shall not murder. And look what Jesus does with this command in verse 22. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying here, whereas in the past, murder would have been considered deserving of judgment, Jesus says, I'm going to take that a step further. If you insult your brother, you're deserving of judgment. If you call someone a fool, you're deserving of judgment. Do you see how Jesus is taking this initial command about murder and he's heightening the expectations? He's making it even like, uh, he's raising the standard, if you will. It kind of confronts this idea that people might have had where you can say, well, at least I'm not a murderer. And Jesus says, you ever insulted someone before? You ever called someone a fool? That's deserving of judgment too. And we're beginning to realize here from Jesus' teaching that what he is primarily concerned about is not just your external actions and not just the, the act of not murdering someone. Jesus is after our hearts. And so when these people hear this expectation that you need to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, it's not just this outward righteousness. They realize from Jesus' teaching, I need a change from the inside out. Notice the authority that Jesus demonstrates over the scriptures here. He quotes an Old Testament command in verse 21. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Notice what he says in verse 22, but I say to you. Imagine the looks on the people's faces as he is taking the law and he's saying, and I'm telling you this. They're probably thinking, who is this guy that can do this with 
the Scriptures, and Jesus repeats this formula six more times. Look again at the next section, verse 27. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and he goes on to quote this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, he's taking the commandment, and he's coming after our hearts. He's saying there's even more that's expected of you. Again, you can see from the headers in your Bible, Jesus does this with divorce, with oaths, with retaliation. Six times Jesus says, this has been said, but I say to you. This teaching continues through chapters 6 and 7. Jesus speaks authoritatively about a variety of topics, perhaps most notably is his speaking or teaching about the Father. From what I understand, it was unusual for Jewish people at this time to refer to God as a Father. And so for Jesus to be talking this way and to talk about God as the Father would have been, again, just so surprising to these Jewish people. And he doesn't just talk about God as a Father, he even speaks on his behalf. I have a couple of examples here for you. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks for God as, as God will reward and forgive and condemn people. And you just imagine them saying, who can speak on God's behalf like this? Who, who has the right to say that God will condemn or forgive or reward or any of these things? And to top it all off, Jesus concludes his sermon. Look over at chapter 7, verse 24. After he's done giving us all of this wisdom, all of this truth about the Father and how to live, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. And we know that it goes on to say, and if you ignore these commands, you're like the fool who builds your house on the sand. Again, just shock. Who, who, who after they're done speaking, says, if you listen to what I just said, you're wise. And if you ignore me, you've played the fool. We can see the people's reaction to Jesus' sermon in verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Notice our key word here, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not their scribes. In John chapter 7, we get this pronouncement about the teaching of Jesus. <laughs> they come back and say to the Pharisees, uh, no one ever spoke like this man. All of this here is to illustrate Jesus, or excuse me, Matthew's point about Jesus. The authority that he possesses over first the scriptures is unlike anything we've ever seen before. Jews, you think that his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies is awesome. Let's just look at the life of Jesus and see the authority that he has. He's building a case to these people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus has no problem speaking about uh, the enhanced requirements of the law, about God as his Father. Jesus, even in this sermon, speaks about future events. But Jesus is going to demonstrate his authority even further here. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. We read, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. 
And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. I think you know where this is going, what Jesus is demonstrating his authority over. For him to do this to a leper, I mean, we give people a wide berth who have a cough. Imagine leprosy. Your life is changed if you contract leprosy, and Jesus goes and he touches him. And it's the leper who's cleaned. The fullest demonstration of Jesus' authority comes in this next section, though, verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He's suffering terribly. And he said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. What is Jesus demonstrating his authority over in this text of scripture? Yeah, the body, we might say disease, right? Just imagine in your mind's eye how unheard of it must have been for a centurion, this powerful Roman soldier, to come to Jesus and call him Lord, show some subservience there. And, and Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal him. And he says, don't worry about it. I also have authority. I know what it is to tell people to do things. And they do it. He's implying about Jesus that what? He has authority. The centurion knows it. Jesus marvels at his faith. It's awesome. And in his dialogue afterward, he talks about how his kingdom is going to be full of Gentile people who exhibit this same faith. Look at verse 13, the conclusion of this story, the centurion. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. In verses 14 to 17, Jesus continues to heal people. He heals um, Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, in verse 16, we'll, we'll just read verse 16 and 17. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew is continuing this fulfillment uh, uh, equation here where he keeps mentioning all of these Old Testament prophecies that Jesus has fulfilled, we can just imagine all of these people lined up being healed by Jesus. We are seeing, Matthew is making a great case for us here, Jesus not only has authority over the scriptures, but over disease. Look at verse 23. We're introduced to a new category that Jesus has authority over. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they, the disciples, went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O, o you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? You tell me, what is Jesus demonstrating authority over here? Nature, creation, yes. I mean, the wind and the waves on the ocean do not just stop. And Jesus speaks a word, and it stops. Do you see this case that Matthew is building here? Scriptures, disease, creation. Jesus demonstrates authority over all these things. Look at verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. We'll stop the reading here, but what is Jesus demonstrating authority over? Demons. Spiritual forces. You get the idea that the demons are terrified of Jesus. Don't, don't torment us before the time. Please, if you're going to send us anywhere, send us into these herd of pigs. It's like James says, even demons know orthodox truth about God. They know who he is. They can observe Jesus and they know he has authority over them, over demonic forces. This continues. Let's look over at chapter 9, verse 1. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Notice again verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus is here demonstrating authority that he can do what? Heal? forgive sins? Notice when he makes that first proclamation, here comes the paralytic into the house. Jesus forgives his sins. He doesn't heal him right away. He says, your sins are forgiven. And the people are sitting there thinking, Jesus is blaspheming. Only who can forgive sins? And Matthew says, are you seeing what I'm putting down here? Jesus has authority to forgive sins. He's God. He is this promised Messiah. Again, he's just like mounting this argument on top of itself. Chapter 9 continues to talk about more healing. Perhaps the climax of that healing is found in verse 18. We won't read this whole story here, but beginning in verse 18, we read, While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And we know that Jesus goes to this girl's house, and he has authority even to raise the dead. One more instance in chapter 10. Let's look at this from our reading this week. Chapter 10, verse 1. And Jesus, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits, to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. We keep seeing this word authority 
or a synonym of it over and over and over again in these passages of Scripture. What is Jesus demonstrating here? Yeah, that he can actually, maybe more specifically, delegate his authority. He tells the disciples, I'm giving you guys authority to do some of the things that I've already done in these previous chapters. And maybe that's not impressive to us on the surface, but to delegate authority, you must what? Possess it. Right? Imagine if someone came to you and said, hey, I'm giving you the ability to heal blind people and to raise the dead. You'd be like, who are you? You, you probably can't even do this yourself, man, let alone give this authority to me. And yet Jesus, he possesses authority that he can even delegate to lesser people that they can do the same works that he has done. It's unbelievable. And Matthew, I hope that you can see this, the weight of evidence for the Jewish people that he is their Messiah has got to be as big as a mountain now, right? We're left thinking after reading these first 10 chapters, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He possesses authority no one else has. This is no ordinary man. This is the Messiah. I hope that your faith has been strengthened, even as we've just considered some of these things. Right? We know that following Jesus requires faith. But it certainly is kind of like the cherry on top to read all of these accounts, to see Jesus be the fulfillment of scriptures, to see the power that he has, and to know that our faith is sure. It's been placed, the object of our faith, rather, it is a steady anchor, as we considered from Hebrews chapter 6. This is not something that we have misplaced our faith and are just kind of clinging on to for dear life. No, as we see who Jesus has revealed to us to be, we have confidence, we have assurance. He is who he said he is. And I couldn't help but think about what Peter said regarding Jesus in Second Peter chapter 1. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter here is talking specifically about what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's not forgotten that. It's still sticking with him. He says, I've seen Jesus in all of his majesty, and I'm telling you that this is not just a wives' tale that I'm propagating. This isn't a cleverly devised story. I have seen Jesus in all of his majesty. I know he's real. I know he's worth following. Matthew is very much doing the same thing, also as an eyewitness of the life of Christ. And he's saying, listen, Jesus is who he said he is. And there is this unspoken question to particularly a Jewish audience, but to all of us. Are we going to believe? Are we going to look at the evidence, the facts, and say, yeah, I believe Jesus and who he is. I hope that was encouraging for you. Let's switch over to answering the questions from this week. If you have your notebooks. I hope you guys are encouraged reading this. It is awesome for me to just consider that, like, 
Monday morning, we all got up and read Matthew chapter 6 together. That is uh, pretty cool, and then I know we're going to come back and discuss it. So I hope you guys are uh, as encouraged as I am. Let's begin with question one from Monday. The question was asked, uh, what phrase is repeated in verses 4, 6, and 18? What phrase, if you notice, is repeated there? Yes, Brenda. Yes, yes. There's actually a little bit longer phrase. But that is part of it. Yes. Just raise your hand. Sorry, not to be like too classroomy, but it's hard for me to like keep track of <laughs> everyone talking. Yes, Barb. Yes. Father who sees in secret will reward in secret. So let me ask you this then. This takes a little bit of extra thought, but what was wrong then with the hypocrites, Jesus' favorite word for the Pharisees, what was wrong with their method of giving, praying, and fasting according to verse 1? Julia. Yeah, they were doing it to be seen and rewarded by others, not by God. Remember, like Jesus says, when fast, they just like look decrepit. Like, they're like so skinny and their faces are just marred and they're like, Oh, I've been fasting for so long. Jesus says, you have your reward. When they give, they sound a trumpet. Look at me, look at me. Okay, I'm going to put my money in the box. When they pray, they make a big pretense of their prayers. Okay, then what, if we are going to apply this verse to present day to our lives, what do these instructions for worship teach us about God and maybe even how we should worship? Any ideas? Bonnie? Exactly. Yeah, Bonnie said that God is looking at our hearts. He's more concerned not with the outward expressions of our worship, but with what our heart looks like. Anyone else? God knows us and our needs. Yes, Hava. Yes, and that requires a certain amount of faith, right? To trust that the God who sees in secret will observe our actions of worship and reward us accordingly. Kind of interesting. Yeah, Mike. It makes me think of present time when people give and they put it on Facebook and Instagram. Don't do that. Just give. Yeah, it should inform the way we give. Be private. Exactly. Any other thoughts from the section? Yeah. Be humble. Be humble. Very much so, yes. Yep. God wants to, when we worship or when we give, God wants, wants the glory for himself, not for the people that are around us. You know, when we do it publicly, we get the glory. When we do it privately, we get the glory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let me just scan my notes really quick to see if there was anything that maybe wasn't said. Um, I just had maybe this final idea to conclude this section here, is that God isn't interested in what we might call uh, flashy Christianity. It's likely that perhaps the most spiritually mature people among us are those who are the most ordinary, the most unassuming, that, that's really what God is after here. Not this, look at me, look at me, look at me. Like Barb was saying, the glory's for God, not for us. 
And so maybe there's a, a bit of a rebuke in there as well. We shouldn't be judging our brothers and sisters in Christ by their perceived spirituality. If they were doing a good job of practicing this, there's a good chance we're not going to know, at least by outward appearances, uh, all the things that they're doing. Yeah, just really interesting for us to consider. Uh, second question from Matthew chapter 6. Uh, again, I realize this one is more personal, and I try to include some personal questions just to fuel some uh, self-reflection and some encouragement for your day. So I'm not going to ask you uh, what exactly you've been anxious about, but I am curious maybe generally how these specific verses might provide comfort for your soul in the midst of uncertainty. Yes, Julia. Yeah, Julia said that uh, worry in and of itself is uh, pretty ineffective, uh, but we have a very powerful God who can meet our needs. Any other conclusions from these verses? Yeah, Claire. Yeah, I, I was thinking of um, Jesus talking about, you know, our earthly fathers know how to give us good gifts, how to meet our needs. Can we not trust our Heavenly Father to do the same? Cuppy, I saw your hand back here. Lynn? Yeah, yeah, I hope some of these uh, more personal, reflective questions are helpful just as you go about, you know, Monday morning, and perhaps there are some anxieties that are uh, very heavy on your heart, and you're just reminded, you know, Scripture addresses these things. First Peter says, cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Uh, Philippians talks about this peace of God which surpasses even understanding that will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, I know anxiety can plague a lot of us, but Scripture is not unclear as to the solution or the source of deliverance in the midst of our anxiety. Okay, Matthew chapter 7. It is not unusual to hear verse 1 quoted, even by unbelievers. And off the top of my head, I don't have my Bible right here, but it's something to the effect of judge not lest ye be judged. Anyone ever heard someone quote that to you before? Even an unbeliever? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I remember, like, you'll hear people say, like, maybe they're uh, living with their girlfriend or something, and if you even dare insinuate that their actions are against God's word or displeasing to the Lord, they'll throw out a judge not lest you be judged as, like, a trump card. Like, well, if you want to obey the Bible, then don't judge me. <laughs> it's almost like a, I'm going to live how I want, and don't tell me any differently. But after examining this verse in its context... Is that really what this is saying? No, is it teaching that we should never judge other people? What is it teaching? Let me ask you. Yes, Barb. Yes, exactly. So in the, in the illustration that I gave, although maybe a little bit silly, uh, what this verse is teaching is if, if you know, one of us is living with our boyfriend or girlfriend. We have no right to be accusing someone else of misconduct. We need to first examine our own hearts. 
Uh, scripture, you know, this has been commonly called like the log speck principle. You can see that speck of dust in someone else's eye, but are somehow missing this two by four that is sticking out of your eye. And maybe more practically, before we confront someone else about the apparent selfishness or pride or anger, the acceptable sins of Christianity, we need to do a deep dive into our own hearts and make sure that what? We also aren't proud or selfish or prone to anger. And really what this verse should incite within each of us is a real serious sense of self-reflection and repentance if necessary before we ever even think about approaching someone else whose sins have become glaring or obvious to us. Any other thoughts from this question or this verse in particular here? All right. Oh, Claire. I was just saying that also when you're judging someone, you, you, you don't have the right to judge their motives because you don't know their hearts. Only God does. So if you are misjudging someone, you might be really misjudging someone because you don't know what their motive is or what their heart is feeling, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, second question from Matthew chapter 7. It says, this chapter ends what is traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount and contains many teachings of Jesus that are very familiar to us. Uh, I was just curious if there were any teachings perhaps that you could give testimony to that even that day you thought about and were trying your best to live out from the Word. Julia. those of you who couldn't hear, Julia was just um, drawing our, our attention to the fact that God expects us to ask of him before he just willy-nilly just showers us with all of the answers to our problems. It reminded me, even as we were talking, of uh, I think in James, somewhere in the beginning there, he says, you have not because you ask not. Yeah, and there is a certain amount of like dependence that we need to have on the Lord and communicate that through asking him things. Anything else from this chapter? I mean, this is rich with teachings. For, my, for myself, uh, I was drawn to what we traditionally called the, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And uh, I've thought about that even since. And I can just, I don't know, just personally, like the Lord has used our reading from Tuesday, even like yesterday, to draw to mind the golden rule and just think about how I want to be treating other people. I hope that's happening in all of our lives as we meditate on the scriptures. Any other uh, big ideas, maybe from chapter 7. All right, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, I believe this question and the next uh, dovetail very closely with what we talked about. So I'll just read it, and maybe we can uh, answer collectively. But I said, remember that Matthew is writing his gospel with the intent to demonstrate that Jesus is the promised king, the promised Messiah, what does the centurion insinuate about Jesus that he, what, has authority? Yeah. And then again in Matthew chapter 8, I asked you to list the various things that Jesus demonstrates his authority over in this chapter. I gave you perhaps an example of how that could impact your faith, but I'm curious 
and what other ways you thought that seeing these facts about Jesus impacted your faith on a very practical, everyday level? Was there anything that maybe I missed that you uh, keyed in on there? Brenda. Exactly. Yeah, Brenda said, in so many words, our faith is not misplaced. We know, after reading these first 10 chapters of Matthew, who Jesus is. He, he is the Son of God. Uh, Shane. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, you're good. Go ahead. Yeah. I was about to point out that you would say, I said Shane's Direction. <laughs> A little bit because you brought it up, but at the end of Matthew, Jesus says, all authority on earth has been given to me. Go what? Preach the gospel to the Jews, the Gentiles. I mean, because Jesus still has authority, it gives us confidence to go and do the work that he's called us to do. Yeah, exactly. Shane. Because he has that authority, we don't have to be afraid. Yeah. Sweet. Those are some pretty awesome conclusions. As a connection to Genesis, because he creates everything with his words and created the sea, but then here he's able to calm the sea. And that reminds me of the famous painting by Rembrandt, Storm of the Sea of Galilee. Yeah, I, I can't help but think about you know what the New Testament says about Jesus being creator. Like you were drawing our attention to Genesis. Here is the creator in his creation, just telling the sea, stop. And it knows who its creator is. It obeys. Pretty awesome. Yeah, let's keep moving. Matthew chapter 9. According to verse 9, what profession did Matthew have before he was a disciple of Jesus? What was Matthew? A tax collector, yeah. And how was this profession viewed by other people? <laughs> yeah, Barb said horribly. Uh, maybe use the language of the text. What did they call tax collectors? Uh, sinners, yeah, I hear it like whispered. Yeah, they called them sinners. He's, they said of Jesus that he eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. So maybe, uh, maybe more specifically or applicable to our lives and hearts, what is Matthew's calling to be a disciple and that he was a tax collector, someone who was literally like siding with the Romans and taxing his own people. What is Jesus calling of him? Teach us about Jesus. Julia. Yeah, Julia said that it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, you can always come to Jesus. Any other thoughts? Bonnie. Jesus came for all of us. I think it's in Luke that Jesus says, uh, the physician doesn't go to people who are well. He comes to those who know they are sick. Matthew very much would have been one of these people. I think we could conclude that 
no sin or social stigma disqualifies us from following Jesus. I think we see in the character and person of Jesus that he loves those who are the most difficult to love. We probably would have given a pretty wide berth to tax collectors and lepers of the day, and Jesus says, hey, I love you guys. Yeah, Mike. Maybe think of how he called the fishermen to be fishers of men, but here a tax collector. So now he's going to store up wealth, not for the Romans, but heavenly riches. Shane, did you have your hand raised? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think it's interesting that uh, I think Matthew's the only person in that section where they actually mentioned what his profession was. And I can't help but think that Matthew is the one writing this, and he's humbled by the fact that Jesus would choose a tax collector. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that's pretty awesome. Matthew kind of throws himself under the bus a little bit and says, yeah, Jesus came to save me too. Hmm. All right. From the second half of chapter 9, there's another description we have of Jesus seeing the crowds and being moved with compassion. What would it look like for us to demonstrate that kind of heart for others like Jesus had? What does that look like in the day-to-day? Maybe someone who's not answered yet, but you brought your notebook and would like to share. I'm sorry. Modest compassion. Oh, okay. Yeah, compassion. Well, yeah, yeah. Compassion. Anyone who hasn't answered yet? Jeff. Kind of piggyback off of what Bonnie said, not to look down on people um, that maybe we wouldn't associate with, but to have compassion on them and remember they need Jesus to um, share the gospel with them, make friendships with them. You know, we kind of see crowds and we think, smelly, dirty, a hassle, uh, I'm going to avoid it. And Jesus sees crowds and he says, these are like people, like sheep without a shepherd. He, he wasn't frustrated that they weren't up to his spiritual level or they didn't know who he was. He just had a, a, the utmost compassion for them. Very, very quickly, uh, from chapter 10, according to verses 16 to 18, what is one of the results of persecution? Anyone have an answer to that question? What is a result of persecution, according to this text. Yeah, and specifically because it's an offense against the law. You're going to be brought before governors and kings. As you proclaim the name of Christ and as you get in trouble with the law, you're going to find yourself in audiences of some really powerful people. I couldn't help but think that the Apostle Paul is like exhibit A of this. Uh, He's in front of Festus and Felix and Agrippa the king. And with all of these men, he gets an opportunity to share Christ with them. And there's a comfort given as well that in that hour, you don't need to think or worry about what you're going to say. The Father is going to send a spirit and speak through you. How encouraging is that? Would you not be pining over your words the day before your trial? I'm going to stand before Agrippa today. God says, don't worry about it. I sent the spirit. And then there's one more question, but I heard the bell ring, so I'll let you think about that one again in your own heart. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we are just grateful for your word and its timelessness, that it it even speaks to our hearts today. Just as we observe your son, as we consider his teachings, and as we are just confronted with truth after truth after truth in your word, we're seeing that it has application to my life today. Let us be faithful in living these things out and meditating on it. And just each day as we have one chapter to consume and meditate on, would you use those words to just... Uh, Keep us going and energized uh, for that day. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen.